0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Iraqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Iraqi Voices is a podcast that showcases Iraqi perspectives and insights about current developments in our country. Iraqi Voices is produced by 1001 Iraqi Thoughts. In the last few weeks, we've witnessed how Iraq's political parties negotiate the allocation of key positions like the speakership, now the presidency, and later on the premiership. These allocations and other key decisions are made on ethno-sectarian lines and have been in this manner for the last 17 years. But how did we get where we are today? Today, I am joined by Dr. Shamran Mako, Assistant Professor at the Pardee School of Global Affairs at Boston University to discuss her book project on state building in the post-2003 Iraq and how legacies of inclusion and exclusion continue to shape politics today. Welcome, Dr. Mako.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you all.
0: Let's first get started by asking if American and Iraqi politicians who were involved in the overthrow of former dictator Saddam Hussein were to reflect on the ongoing post-election negotiations today, what would they be thinking? How far away is the Iraqi system today from what they envisaged for the country nearly two decades ago?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. That's such an important question. And I think as we approach, you know, the two decades of the Iraq war, um, the invasion and and subsequent state building, um, much of what we see actually ailing the system now uh, is a reflection of some of The kind of incongruent and expedient state building that we saw happening between 2003, in the lead up to the drafting of the first constitution and its adoption in 2005, and I think if policymakers were to kind of have this, you know, uh, 2020 hindsight vision and looking back at what they could have, you know, done better, or looking at where the system would be, I think in a way it actually is exactly where it was intended to be in that you have you know, elite consensus that isn't necessarily enshrined in the constitution that makes this informal power-sharing uh, consociational system that was put in place a bit complex in how different elite bargaining and negotiations happen and how they're sustained across time. Um, and I think if we take a long view of Iraq's development over the past two decades, a couple of patterns emerge you know first you have elite bargaining and consensus uh, and consensus building that's tied to ethnic power blocks and these ethnic power blocks through different coalitions and political parties really compete internally over their capture of key positions within the government and at the same time you have lack of consensus over what the state is supposed to do and how it's supposed to function and i think much of the institutional kind of arrangements that we saw that were put in place Post 2003 are limited in the sense that so much was left to be determined in terms of negotiating over, you know, with the kind of recent example uh, of the Iraqi Supreme Court passing um, the law that effectively strips away the KRG of its oil bargaining powers and oil distribution powers a lot of that was left to be determined post 2003. And so what we see now is actually an outcome of a lot of these incongruent decisions that were made quite quickly and with the hope that Iraq would just, you know, transition to democracy and that elites down the line would sort of just figure this out and negotiate amongst themselves over these key issues. And what we've seen over the past two decades is elites kind of unable to bargain in a way that would create institutions that would be robust enough to sustain these different shocks that we've seen over the past two decades. And at the same time, that would actually build the institutions that need to be built, that remain to be built with respect to decentralization, with respect to federalism, with respect to the distribution of oil across different regions, with respect to the disputed territories and so on. And so I think it's much of what we're seeing now is actually no surprise. Um, And it's a testament to this incongruent and expedient state building that happened in between 2003 and 2004, really, and then early on 2005 until the adoption of the Constitution.
0: Thank you so much, Doctor. Now, do you think part of... Where we are today, and, and you discuss the inability to have a consensus, the lack of state building and institution building, is that because the current crop of leaders, those that are in that elite political pact, are they just busy with state capture rather than state building?
1: What we've seen over the past two decades and over different election cycles is power is shared amongst elites and the negotiations often entail exactly as you said, which institutions get to be distributed to powerful party blocks, And we know that these different powerful party blocks within the muhassasa system, this kind of informal elite power sharing system, effectively seeks to appease different ethno sectarian groups. And so what we've seen is very little change in leadership and with that then very little change in actual governing dynamics. And it's why you have this culmination of the tishreen movement or the Tishrin movement in 2019 that effectively called for the dismantling of the system, though much harder to do and almost impossible at this point. And at the same time, you have these elites that effectively have distributed different agencies within the government based on top elite negotiations rather than over what actually works and technocratic kind of allocations. And I think this is why we're seeing some of the stalemate we're seeing even with the current government formation, Which actually we've seen in prior elections as well. And it's why I think, you know, there's this pattern over the past two decades that keeps emerging and that is inherently tied to how ethno-sectarian elites have both captured the system, but also how they've come to kind of propagate their own rule in the ways in which state institutions have become in many ways actually subservient to ethnic elite interests rather than actual capable technocratic Governance.
0: I think you're absolutely right. This is why, four months after voting, Iraqis are still without a president, a prime minister, and a cabinet. Dr. Mako, Iraqis, of course, had a considerable amount of agency in what happened after 2003. But the most influential player in shaping Iraq's new system was the United States of America. How did things go so badly for America?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. I think if you look at the context in which the Iraq war, pre-war planning, the invasion occurred, you know, you're looking at this, you know, over a decade since the fall of the Soviet Union, where the U.S. had this, you know, ability to project both global economic and military power. And in doing so, it, in some ways, through its hubris, you saw this attempt to remake effectively states that had deemed to be rogue states, states that threaten either American interests or the global system in its own image. Um, and there was clear thinking, especially amongst the neoconservatives who were dominant in the later parts of the Clinton administration, and who really then came to power under the Bush administration, um, they saw democracy as an end game in and of itself. And in doing so, the propagation of liberal democratic values, even by force, as an inherent value good, right? So this is something in and of itself framed both the perception of the Bush administration towards Iraq, which the U.S. had been, you know, pretty active in, even if we look back at the Iran-Iraq War and then especially during the first Gulf War. And Iraq became the place where the U.S. could kind of, you know, test this new ground, right? It, it was an experiment, effectively, in foreign-imposed democratization. Now, the ways in which that affected the US is quite staggering. The war in and of itself, I think, according to the cost of war project out of Brown University, we're looking at about $1.8 trillion cost. And that cost is going to continue to go up um, for various reasons. And at the same time, about 4,600 service women and men died in the Iraq war of 2003. And so the cost to it financially, politically, economically is quite staggering in comparison to, for example, some of the early discussions amongst Donald Rumsfeld and others and economic advisors to George Bush, who thought, you know, the economic advisors were thinking the war is going to cost a lot more than what the neocons were saying. And the neocons had placed the price tag for the war At being around, you know, something in like the hundreds of millions. And then there was this thinking that, well, Iraqi oil would pay for the cost that America would incur. And so there's a lot of kind of imperialist thinking as well, of what the Iraq war and its potential outcome would mean for the United States politically, on the international, you know, level, uh, but also economically. And so what we've seen really over the past two decades is the cost has been staggering.
0: Thank you so much, doctor. Uh, A lot of academic literature, as well as foreign policymakers and Iraqis in general, uh, vilify the exiled Iraqi elites and blame them for creating a corrupt and sectarian political system in Iraq, and even for the 2003 invasion. What does your research say about the role of the exiled opposition, and do they deserve this judgment?
1: I think it's a really interesting question, and it's a question that I'm diving into as part of my book project on how institutions structure mobilization, but also ethnic conflict across time. Um, There are a couple of competing narratives that come out when we look at the role of both exiled elites, and I also want to emphasize Iraqi dissident elites. So these are Iraqis who were working inside the country um, through the different um, anti-Baathist resistance that had Emerged really in the actually in the nineteen eighties at the uh, at the onset of the Iran Iraq War, and of course before that as well. But under the Iran Iraq War or during the Iran Iraq War, um, and especially post nineteen ninety one when the no fly zone was created. Um, that created the de facto Kurdistan regional government. And I think there's a couple of narratives. On the one hand, much of works that have come out on this time period view the exiled elites more so than the dissident elites working inside the country as the sole reason for the invasion. And we see this narrative being propagated as well in different uh, reports that have come out from think tanks and works by scholars who have looked at the Iraq war since 1991, and then onward until 2003. And so the exiled elites um, are blamed squarely for the 2003 invasion. And the argument is that they created the conditions, right, whereby American interests came to align with those of exiled elites. On the other hand, you know, some works Blame the invasion squarely on neocons and the neoconservatives and their alliance with these exile elites. And of course, under the Bush administration and in the era, of the post 9 11 era, and the kind of heightened American interventionism as a result of 9 11. And I think what's interesting in my interviews with both American policymakers and looking at some of the now declassified documents from the Iraq War, as well as interviews with both exile elites and dissident elites. I think the pattern emerges a bit differently in that what we see is that there's a strategic alliance that was made between Iraqi elites and dissident elites inside the country, those in exile, and American uh, policymakers. Um, and within the context of this you know, American state-building period, this kind of unipolar moment where Democratization by force was seen as an inherent value good, as I mentioned earlier. Um, this alliance of convenience really kind of starts to emerge, where Iraqi dissidents, both in the country and those in exile, you know, struck this relationship effectively with American policymakers. And in that sense, actually, American policymakers saw the potential for Iraq to become the litmus test, an experiment in both foreign-imposed regime change. Um, as well as foreign and post-democratization. In other words, for the Americans, if Iraq worked, right, if it worked on becoming this kind of successful democracy its success would reverberate around the region and around the world. So this is the kind of domino effect um, phenomenon that people talk about. And in doing so, this would give the U.S. a lot of legitimacy, right, that it already kind of had come to exude in its unipolar moment. But the story emerging from Iraqi exiled and dissident elites is a bit different in that these elites saw, they saw the strategic relationship as something that was espoused by the Americans Especially in the logistical and financial support that was provided to Iraqi opposition groups from the United States, especially after 1990 and 1991, um, to both Iraqi elites in exile, you know, in London and in DC and in other places from so the UK and the US, as well as Iraqi Kurds in the north and dissident political groups operating in the Kurdistan region in nineteen ninety one. These include different minority groups. And I think what's interesting is that this time period really should be seen as a precondition. And that precondition is shaped by this strategic alliance that both Iraqi elites made uh, with the Americans and vice versa. And I want to say here, I think part of the story is that, you know, you have these Iraqi elites who were culpable in effectively lobbying the U.S. for regime change. And I think in some ways the narrative should be flipped. In that the US and American policymakers saw an opportunity to engage in regime change through these exiled elites who were providing the necessary intelligence as well as uh, support for the Iraqi opposition in exile. And so there's this kind of mutual give and take that happens between these two entities that were so instrumental in what we saw in terms of advocating for regime change, really in the lead up to regime change in 2002 and in 2003. And so it's a bit, I think, unfair to blame squarely the exiled elites for the 2003 invasion because they were responding to different levels of support that that the United States was giving these groups after 1991. In other words, I think the counterfactual would be with the Iraqi exiled elites and dissident elites operating in the country have succeeded in regime change had it not been for the logistical and at times, you know, low grade military, as well as financial support to these groups. And I think that's an interesting counter argument. And I'm not sure that they would have actually succeeded had it not been for American backing of these groups.
0: It sounds like a very fascinating symbiotic uh, relationship that took place nearly uh, 20 years ago, Doctor. What other post 2003 narratives that have been constructed and sustained to explain what happened to Iraq after 2003, and which of these narratives gets the story right? I
1: think the narrative is that you know, on the one hand, you have institutions that are weak and that are subservient to different ethno-political factions and power blocks. And tied to that is this, rightly, this idea that the muhassassah system, an informal consociational power-sharing model that was adopted for Iraq post-2003, has effectively kind of led to the state capture by powerful groups. And at the same time, there's this other narrative that looks at two decades on that Iraq has effectively become a failed state in the way, right, that democracy just hasn't taken on. And these elections are really not that meaningful, given that not much changes in terms of power dynamics. And I think there's what Tashreen has actually showed us is some, you know, truth to both of these narratives. But at the same time, I think on the societal level, if we see what's happening, so if we leave out the state and the structure for a second, I think if we look at the societal level, and some of the works, that are emerging and looking at, for example, civil society organizations, women's participation, and so on, I think you're seeing a different dynamics that are emerging that are shaping state-society relations. And those relate to both the ability of Iraqis to actually engage in mass protest movements, like we saw in Tashrin, though constrained and then violently repressed by both state and non-state actors, And at the same time, we're seeing this kind of pushback from different sectors of Iraqi society against the Muhasasa system and against this kind of ethno-sectarian power block system that has captured the state over the past two decades. And we're seeing that both in Iraq, um, in the central part of Iraq, in the southern part of Iraq, and in the northern part of Iraq. And I think the third set of narratives that we've seen emerge after 2003 really much of that also reflects narratives of Iraq before 2003, is that the Kurdistan region is seen as this kind of democratic model that Iraq could follow. Right. And um, that in and of itself isolated the development and sub-state relations between Kurds and the regional government and Kurds, uh, ordinary citizens and Baghdad. Um, And it kind of compartmentalized state society relations in Iraq based on this kind of, it created this discontinuous relationship between both the subnational government and the federal government. Uh, And I think what we're seeing, especially over the past two to three years, is actually a change in that perception, in that the grievances of the Kurds in the north are not dissimilar and are actually almost identical to the grievances of Iraqis in central Iraq and in southern Iraq in terms of socioeconomic disenfranchisement, uh, in terms of the lack of political representation or meaningful political representation. You know, if we look at the question of minorities as well in Iraq, Minority populations are dwindling and minorities, for example, also no longer really see the KRG as a safe haven, given that many of them want to actually leave Iraq entirely, as do the Kurds. And so I think if we kind of pay attention to what's happening at the societal level, we're seeing this kind of rupture in how Iraq has been seen over the past two decades in terms of its overall developments, whether it be at the national level or the subnational level.
0: I can't thank you enough for that answer because there's so much information and so much to unpack. One aspect I wanted to ask you about is the debate that took place pre-elections in 2021 is the tactic that civil society should take, uh, individuals should take and the tactic of, you know, boycotting the elections versus participating in nascent democracies what have you seen in your studies as being the most effective tactic to use?
1: I think it all, I mean, if we look comparatively, both across the region and outside the region, um, and sometimes we draw, you know, broad comparisons from countries that have been, you know, institutionalized democracies for, you know, centuries, if not decades, um, versus emergent democracies. And I think if we look at what other you know, comparative kind of cases show us, it really is context dependent. And it's context dependent because the institutions of each state are different. And the constraints that the electorate faces from the institutions of the state in terms of how electoral laws are set up, how power sharing is set up, and how, you know, things like federalism, resource allocation, etc. Those all vary by context. And I think in some instances, boycotts work, if the system is robust enough to actually facilitate change, right? And if civil society groups and civil society actors are able to influence those in powerful positions to actually change, you know, institutional constraints or political constraints that are ailing a nascent democracy like Iraq. I think on the other hand, the question then becomes, you know, is it better to participate in elections um, and within a given system, that effectively has yielded the same outcome time and time again. And in the case of Iraq, I think what's interesting is that what we saw Tashrin uh, do is show that boycotts are effective. The electoral law is an outcome of the Tishreen uh, movements. And I say movements because they're in the way ongoing uh, through different kind of localities. And at the same time, I think if we look at Tashrin and its success, you know, it was able to bring down a prime minister. And I think that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle and in a way is undermined by the things that have obstructed Tashreen since 2019. But it shows that boycotts are powerful. And at the same time, mass mobilization and participation through mass mobilization for the purpose of demanding change can work. And so the question then becomes, what do those in power want to do? right? Do they take the boycott as a sign that things need to change and institutions need to change? And then the question then becomes, is there a will to actually engage in meaningful institutional change that the electorate is demanding? And will that change come incrementally or is it kind of an immediate rupture that happens where different laws are, are reformed? And I think with the passing of the electoral law, with all of its flaws, shows that incremental change may be on the horizon but time will tell right as this new government comes in and it's not necessarily looking great that it's taken four months for these negotiations to form a new government to happen but i think at the same time you know iraq is a democracy that's been 20 years in the making and so i think if we look more comprehensively at at what's happening and what's emerging in iraq from society and different social actors And the ways in which the state is responding, it's really interesting. And there are some fascinating developments that are happening. The question then becomes, how will elites respond? Will they respond by, you know, adopting the same MO that they've adopted, which is repression and exclusion? Or are elites going to actually embark on incremental change that's much needed to actually get Iraq's democratic transition on a more positive course? And I think only time will tell.
0: Doctor, you mentioned the electoral law a couple of times. As a political scientist who studies state building, do you think that the new electoral law, which draws smaller districts, will lead to better representation and ultimately a more stable and functioning political order?
1: I think one of the interesting things about the new electoral law is, as you said, it's the creation of these smaller districts and the smaller versus districts or constituencies that are based on the provincial on the provincial level. They're now based on a kind of a smaller municipal breakdown um, of districts across provinces. And one of the thing, other kind of key mechanisms of the law. Um, and so the first one is the creation of these district based, um, as opposed to province based constituencies, um, that then would allocate seats based on in, people voting for an individual versus their affiliation for the party. And the second one is that it introduces this um, SNTV voting system. And I think that in and of itself was supposed to effectively allow for more representation and transparency and simplicity in actual vote counting that then would determine seat allocation per district. And I think based on the results of the elections that we've seen, though I haven't seen district-level data, actually, it'll be interesting to see once government is formed, which districts across which provinces have won seats that they otherwise would not have won had the law not come into effect. And that would then determine what parliament actually looks like, right? Right. Is there going to be a significant number of new representatives that have been elected that otherwise would not have been if the law had not been put in place? And does the law work the way it was intended to work, which was to effectively break down the power of major political power blocks and major coalitions and allow for more, you know, quote unquote, independent candidates uh, to emerge within this context? And I think, Again, once we kind of have a clear picture of what parliament looks like, it will be interesting to see if it actually worked in, in doing so. And I think to an extent, based on the data that we have so far, it has in terms of the number of, and I loo- I use the word independent candidates loosely, and I think uh, uh, Dr. Marcin El-Shamri's report uh, on the question of independent candidates in Iraq um, does a really good job at highlighting this, but we've seen this kind of greater representation on that scale. The law... I think, has a few shortcomings, especially when it comes to seat allocation for quotas. And what the law effectively, these quotas are really important for minority representation. What the law effectively did is that it allowed citizens from all over the country to vote in quota districts. Right. So districts that are limited or that are kind of saved for minority populations, for example, who don't have the numerical clout to actually win seats on their own. Here we're, you know, we're looking at uh, the Yazidi community, the Assyrian community, the Turkmen community, etc. cetera. Um, and the law by opening up the districts to votes or to voters from outside of those districts, I think it has actually done a great detriment to allowing for meaningful quotas based on minority representatives from those minority groups to actually win seats in parliament. And we've seen this happening in terms of different levels of co optation that have, you know, occurred since the last election in terms of the co-optation of major political power blocks like the Sadr or the Badr organization, for example, with the Assyrian Christian vote in the Nineveh Plains um, and the disputed territories. And similar trends are emerging for the Yazidi community. And so I think there needs to be continual reform and looking at the shortcomings of the law to actually make the law more robust down the line.
0: Thank you for pointing out uh, Dr. Marcina Shamari's report, and that report was uh, quite informative on the independence. Doctor, if we can look outside of Iraq, are there successful examples of power sharing and elite bargaining that Iraq can learn from?
1: Yeah, I think… If we look at the question of power sharing and what power sharing is supposed to do and the idea that it effectively uh, distributes power, right, across key kind of coalitions and powerful ethnic political parties or power blocks that would otherwise not come to a negotiation on their own, it is inherently entrenched in elite bargaining, right? And part of elite bargaining requires elite consensus. And so power sharing at its core really functions to kind of foster inclusion and consensus formation in emergent democracies. And I think those two things are really important, right? People have to find common ground to be able to determine the type of institutions of the state that will then constrain those same powers. I think if we oftentimes, and especially actually in the case of Iraq, and this is something I touch on in my book. Power sharing was seen as a kind of the ultimate goal for getting the Kurds, the Shias and lesser extent actually uh, Sunni Arabs to form some semblance of a state. And much of that then relied on experts and policymakers who worked on, you know, Western European contexts, and some who worked on the South African context when it came to power sharing. And I think there needs to be a couple of things that I think we ought to separate, both empirically and theoretically, um, power sharing in Western contexts. So if we look at the Netherlands. The UK, for example, with this devolved system with Scotland and and Wales and Northern Ireland, etc. Belgium and Spain to an extent with the Basque country and Catalonia. And ultimately, power sharing has worked to avert conflict in these places, right? I think in non-Western contexts, power sharing has a bit of a mixed record. So if you look at Bosnia-Herzegovina, for example, South Africa, Lebanon, much earlier than Iraq, and now Iraq to name a few. And the core reason why it hasn't worked is oftentimes because these same institutional kind of prescriptions that are supposed to work in Western contexts are thought to actually work in non-Western contexts as well. And I think this is where we've seen power sharing be quite limited in the non-Western context, because it's modeled after these uh, Western contexts where the states have been you know, much more institutionalized and where the states have had a longer kind of a history of elite negotiation under a democratic rubric. I think some of the literature on power sharing shows that it's not effective in contexts where there are, for example, dominant and or majority ethnic groups that could then capture government if these dominant ethnic groups and political parties also then dominate elite bargaining and negotiations over you know the allocation of government um, institutional change like electoral laws and things like that and that then in and of itself subverts consensus formation right because once you have these dominant groups really capture the state and its power it becomes much more difficult to actually diffuse the power of these groups and allow for less powerful groups to also have a say in government But power sharing can be effective if groups are unified and unified in terms of um, their vision for the state, but they also have a stake in the uh, development of the state as a whole and state building uh, as a whole. And here, I mean, it's interesting because some works point to some scholars make the argument that we need to differentiate between, for example, inclusive power sharing, dispersive power sharing and constraining power sharing. And what's interesting is in the case of Iraq, we see the adoption of inclusive power sharing where, you know, there's this kind of mandate to have major political power blocks participate in government. And that the institutions of the state and the allocation of seats and allocation of key posts, for example, are tied to the negotiations that happen between different powerful ethnic groups. And the logic behind that is that then diffuses power to these powerful ethnic groups um, to avoid the eruption of conflict, right? So the conflict then would not spill over into different forms of political violence culminating in civil war. What's interesting is some works actually show that in emerging contexts, constrained or constraining power sharing, where there's a limit that's placed on the power of any actor to protect ordinary citizens may work better. And that the logic behind that is then it would allow greater citizen participation outside of the dominant parties to actually then have a say in government formation and the allocation of seats and resources, etc. And so it's really a bit of a mixed record. And I think in the case of Iraq, the argument could be made that power sharing has worked to constrain or to actually facilitate government formation between powerful power blocks but power sharing has not worked to actually diffuse tension and to allow for greater citizen participation right and this is the problem with the muhasasa system is that ultimately the government functions for these elite bargaining systems that are in place uh, not necessarily for the betterment of the ordinary citizen and this is where corruption really starts to become in a way endemic to the system right? And so it's a bit of a mixed record.
0: And one thing that I'd like your take on is the issue of Iraq's immense natural resource and its wealth. That makes matters a lot more complicated than some of the examples that you mentioned. How does that, you know, the oil curse, how does that play a part in the power sharing and elite bargaining that Iraq needs to grapple with?
1: Yeah, I think between 2003 to really that kind of early year and then afterwards, and I think this is when I talk about the kind of incongruent state building is because so many of these core issues, particularly relating to the formation of regions, fiscal federalism, uh, decentralization, and of course, in the case of Iraq as a major oil producing state, the question of its natural resources and its you know extraction, uh, production, and of course, the selling of Iraqi oil were really kind of pushed for a later that, you know, were left to be determined later. Um, and the idea was that by both external state builders and policymakers was that Iraqis would come to find a solution somewhere down the line over the relationship between the federal government and the regional government and uh, how Iraqi oil is actually produced. And if we look at article, for example, 111 of the Constitution, it's quite broad. It just says oil and gas are owned by the Iraqi people, right? In all of the regions and all of the governorates, And I think if you ask, you know, the, the representatives and the leaders of the Kurdistan regional government, They might disagree with that. Right. And that the you know, the oil in the Kurdistan region belongs to the people of the Kurdistan region. And I think we've seen actually these types of narratives come out. And much of it is because there hasn't been a concerted effort in a way for elites to come up with a viable solution over the allocation of these resources. Now, if we look at other places that are comparable to Iraq that are oil producing and in a non kind of uh, democratic context or non Western context, places like Nigeria, for example, or some of the contention over government formation in Libya fall back on this question of what to do with the country's natural resources. Um, and the case of Iraq really shows some of the pitfalls of pushing back on reform and on the creation of institutional mechanisms that would deal with these core questions that are central to both how the regions use their or budget fiscally, right, and at the same time for how the state actually then controls its fiscal resources. And given that a large portion of the Iraqi budget, national budget, relies heavily on oil, Minister uh, Ali Alawi recently noted This is a pretty big deal in terms of creating animosity, but also creating tensions between the regional government and the federal government. And I think, again, much of that really is an outcome of this incongruent and expedient state building, where a lot of these core issues were pushed aside and were kind of left to be determined. And the constitution is actually a bit vague on this uh, question of natural resources, except that it does allocate greater power to the federal government to determine resource extraction and the selling of Iraqi oil. That in and of itself is actually not an anomaly, right? If we look at other oil-producing states, the federal government oftentimes has jurisdiction over natural resources.
0: That's right. Now, when it comes to civil conflict, are there lessons to be learned from Iraqi history, or are we living through exceptional times? How have ethno sectarian divisions in the past shaped the trajectory of the Iraqi state and its political institutions?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really important question because we often have this kind of view of ethno sectarian tensions as an outcome, really primarily of the post 2003. If we take a, again, going back to that kind of long durée view, a longitudinal view, of uh, state-society relations in Iraq, we actually see different patterns that emerge of different uh, ethnic, religious, and sectarian groups pushing back against the state, and also at times actually kind of uh, pushing back against each other, right? We've seen this happening under the monarchy. We saw this happening, especially under the Ba'athist era. We saw this happening even post-1991 and post-2003. And I think... If we look at the history of ethnic mobilization and potentially conflict in Iraq, it really has most of the time been as a result of pushing back against institutional constraints. These institutional constraints are rooted in exclusion, for example. I know some people, some scholars make the argument that the monarchical era was quite democratic and representative. And I kind of want to push back against that because it's under the monarchical era that The Iraqi army commits a massacre against its own civilians, the Simeon Massacre. It's also under the monarchical era that we saw, especially in the early days of the monarchical era, Shias, Yazidis, you know, Assyrians, Turkomans, kind of pushing back against their lack of representation. The inclusion of these groups in the monarchical era really happens a bit later and only as a result of this kind of pushback from different ethnic and religious groups under that time period. But at the same time, we saw different ethnic mobilization, you know, with the different Kurdish uprisings, for example, in the 1960s and 1970s. There also has been, I think, a lot of examples of ethno-religious and ethnic mobilization in general that cut across different communities. And I think this is, and, and much of that then leads to the, culmination, for example, of the different anti-Baathist resistance groups that were emerging in the 1980s and 1990s. And those were in and of themselves quite multi-ethnic, right? And if we go back to the discussion on the Iraqi opposition, both dissident groups and exile groups, these included both Shia Iraqis, Kurdish Iraqis, but also Turkmen Iraqis, Assyrians and Yazidi groups. And so I think you find examples of both. And I think the, the question over have dynamics of conflict always ex- existed? I would say yes. But at the same time, I think what we're seeing post 2003 is this kind of heightened sense of conflict because there's new forms of elite contestation and new patterns of exclusion that kind of propagate the conflict across time.
0: Thank you very much, Doctor. We mentioned that you are working on a book project. When can we hope to see it published?
1: I'm hoping over the next uh, year and a half or a couple of years. Um, I'm really excited about it. The book is tentatively uh, called Structuring Exclusion and takes an institutional's view of both patterns of exclusion and ethnic conflict in Iraq across three time periods from the monarchical era under the Bathis era and post 2003. And I'm really interested in this question of preconditions. So what do we see in terms of exclusion and ethnic mobilization prior to 2003, that in some ways actually informs the patterns of governance that we see that emerge after 2003. And so I'm really excited about it. At the same time, really looking forward to having it come out. uh, So I can move on to the next thing.
0: So am I, I look forward to reading it. Dr. Shamaran Mako, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Pleasure is ours. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Araki Voices. Until next time, take care.